You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good, good. How are you guys? (laughs) Great. (laughs) Yeah. We're very giggly and having a great time today. (laughs) Well... Today, I'm going to talk about a family of plants that barely exists. Ooh. I, yeah, I don't mean that I'm it's intrigued. endangered necessarily. Okay. I just mean that the plants Ooh. are barely there, except Ooh. when they are really, really obvious. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Also, Say more. I, little teaser, uh, my topic has to do with plants as well so i'm very intrigued <laughs> a little teaser my, keep it in the... my topic has nothing to do with plants <laughs> keep it partly in the plant kingdom two-thirds in the plant kingdom this episode folks <laughs> all right <laughs> well these plants have no leaves stems or roots how are they plants uh say what huh? yeah. that's most of what? Uh-huh. uh what a plant is no so no stem, you said no, no leaves, no leaves, no, no leaf, no roots, no roots. Most is of the time moth? they are. No. What? Is, what? What do they have? They're a flowering plant. What? They have a flower. Most of the time, though, they a are flower. invisible to the, the naked eye. Uh, okay. So if you're wondering what the heck is up with these plants, here's another clue: they do not photosynthesize. Oh. Okay. Okay. Yes. Are they mycoheterotrophs? Uh, are they no. Nope. They are parasitic plants. They are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They. Yeah. So I'm talking about the family Rafflesiaceae. I hope I said that right. You guys, just Solid. full stop here. If if Victoria is struggling with a scientific name, we would. We are all in deep, deep <laughs> trouble. Yeah, we Kirk and I, you would. Because that is her jam. (laughs) We cannot help you on this, Victoria. This was a tough one. That name uh, may not sound familiar, but I would bet that you have probably seen a picture of the flowers of this type of plant. Hmm. They are red with white dots. They have usually five petals or sometimes ten. They're Kind of a gaping hole in the center. And they are extremely large. In fact, the single, uh, the largest single flower in the world, which is also the world's heaviest flowers in this family. It's the species Rafflesia arnoldii. Okay. My brain is like tingling, being like, you know this, this, you know this. Is this a bromeliad? Like, what are we? No. No. no, Bromeliad. So the flowers of our arnoldii, I'm going to say that that raffles thing as little as possible from now on. Our Arnoldii are up to a meter across and weigh up to 11 kilograms. Oh. That's. Yeah. That's large. That is heavy. Where are they? Yeah. 
Well, we'll get to that. Oh, but man. another thing, like the species that She's Rachel so talked about on a previous episode, this is another plant that is known as the corpse flower for its delightful oh, scent. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, Good. And it, you know, as you might guess, it's probably pollinated by flies. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, let's talk a little bit about a little bit more about how these plants make their living. They live in South and Southeast Asia. You're asking mainly in okay. rainforests. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, as I mentioned, no leaves, stems or roots. Most of the time they exist Oof. only as just a thin ribbon of cells within the flesh of their hosts. Oh, they yeah. are fully which parasitic. Are, okay. They're fully parasitic which are vines. Their hosts are vines that belong Whoa. to a particular genus in the okay, grapevine, okay. grapevine family. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Nuts. <gasps> I just, what? Yeah. Um, so when they are finally ready to reproduce, they will push out a bud from somewhere on one of these vines, mm-hmm. which then slowly develops into a giant stinky flower. Wow. And yeah, in some Crazy. ways they really behave more like a fungus. So, so that thread of cells is in some ways a lot right. more like a mycelium mm-hmm. um, than any usual structure that a plant has. Mm-hmm. But they are in fact plants. And, you know, admittedly, all this is pretty weird. Yeah. But these plants. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just a these little. These plants are also really strange on a genetic level. Oh, good. I yeah. wouldn't want it to just be on surface level. I want it to go past flower deep. <laughs> All in, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so some biologists at Harvard recently did a genetic analysis of one of the species in this family. It's called Sapria himalayana. That's a lot easier to pronounce than the other one. Um, so they, the, the, Is they that discovered... a saprophyte from the Himalayas? Yes. Um, oh, there we go. It does, in fact, grow Wonderful at higher name. altitudes. I don't think I don't know if they actually grow in the Himalayas, but like higher altitudes in tropical rainforest type of places. Okay. Um, so they discovered that uh, Sapria Himalayana has lost forty four percent of the genes that pretty much all other flowering plants have. Wow, that's I was literally just wondering that, like, if, yeah. if they have a very. Um... I want to say cogent, that's not the right word. Like a (laughs) very, you know, uh, uh, if their DNA is very like efficient, shall we say. Mm. Yeah. So it's pretty normal for parasitic plants to lose chlorophyll. Um, Right. And if you remember, Rachel talked about the ghost plant in an early Mm -hmm. episode, Mm -hmm. um, which I grew up knowing as Indian pipe. But Mm -hmm. but, yeah. yeah, this takes it to an extreme. It seems to have lost all its genes related to photosynthesis and has even lost all genetic trace, they believe, of their chloroplasts, which are um, the little little subcellular units that, that Make sugar. Um, do the photosynthesis. Yes. Yeah. Um, and chloroplasts have their own DNA, much like mitochondria. And, you know, Kirk talked a little bit about how mm-hmm. those um, organelles came to be evolutionarily. But... Yeah, so you were saying, Kirk, you you were, you thought maybe it has stripped down its its genome to a more cogent, yeah. you know, stripping out all the extra stuff it didn't need. You might think that. Is it the opposite? But no. Um, <laughs> they have lost a bunch of those plant genes from 
flowering plants, but they have a bunch, a whole lot of additional genetic material that it seems to have just stolen from its what? current and former Amazing. hosts. Amazing. That's yeah. so cool. Love it. Okay. So it's like a bunch of extra genes that it probably doesn't really need and a bunch of nonsense DNA and like repeating sequences that mm -hmm. as far as anybody can tell, don't really do anything. And this is all by what's called horizontal gene transfer from its hosts. Right. Okay. So that's like basically stealing, stealing genes. Um, yeah. Yeah. When they're replicating their, they're to taking another. some from their host as they're replicating to actually reproduce and like grow, make new cells and things. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. So what it means by horizontal is it's not passed down from a mother cell to a daughter cell. It's right. Yeah. From one generation to the same generation. Mm -hmm. but a different species wild yeah crazy um yeah so it's kind of like this parasite is sort of a dna kleptomaniac and it just cannot stop itself from stealing <laughs> genetic material from its host <laughs> even though it doesn't really need what it. it's taking <laughs> yeah um and that's the the weird thing i have to tell you about this week my uh that is awesome that's, that's amazing yeah the main source here was a paper from Current Biology in January 2021 called Deeply Altered Genome Architecture in the Endoparasitic Flowering Plant, Sapria Himalayana. That's, you know, when yeah. I, when I decided, when I, you know, was thinking about pulling this podcast together and doing this, that's exactly the kind of thing I was hoping is that like, my friends would bring me a story of something that I, you know, even I'm just like, sorry, what now? Like, I did not know that. And there, there's so much strange stuff in this world. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I love it that we can share it with each other and share it with our audience. So thank you. Yeah. Welcome. Thanks, Victoria. Absolutely. We are going to have a small break and Kirk will have something for us when we get back. All right. It's certainly weird. Hey everybody, it's Kirk. Uh, you know, this show is listener supported. So what you're hearing is content that was supported by the members of our Patreon group, the Society of Strange. You can support the show and join the society over at patreon.com slash strange by nature. Go check it out, see some of the benefits and help support a show you enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, one of the more infamous stories that I have done on the show was pretty early on and it was about bat bombs. I knew you were going to ah, say that. There it is. I <laughs> literally it's, it's, it's so, had someone so listen weird. to this episode, to that episode, not this one. This one Amazing. is not out yet, but uh, I had them listen to yeah, the bat I, bombs because you referenced <laughs> it and they were like, what? what? <laughs> bat what? I'm like, mm -hmm, hold on. <laughs> well, I had to go look it up. It is episode 10. I did have to really laugh, though, because like I don't remember exactly which episode everything was. So I mm -hmm. did look it up and I, I, I could have logged into all of our stuff and, and gone through and said, you know, I'm just going to do a Google search for it and see what pops up. And um, one of the first like sites, like hits I got that came back was from an, like a podcast aggregator site in Japan that carries our podcast. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> OK, um, fun. But I had to laugh. Because this one one of the next hits I got that that was actually a good hit that referenced that episode was from iHeartRadio and iHeartRadio is one of the like aggregator services where you can listen to our show mm -hmm. and um, 
as I was scrolling through trying to figure out exactly which one was the, the bat bomb episode, I noticed one um, near episode 10, which is, is the bat bomb one that was really weird because it, it was called is a tool. And I'm like, <laughs> we, we don't we don't have an episode called is a tool. Uh-huh. I think it's uh, called and I think I, it's called poop a tool. tool. <laughs> Yes, exactly. The episode is called Is Poop a Tool? And they had censored our title. It uses the word poop. So there you have it. Um, Nothing to do with today's episode, but I can tell you the title of this one will not have that word in it because apparently we're being censored. So sorry, children. That's the only thing I can think of why that one word would be missing. Yeah, it's ridiculous. That's, but that's so silly. That's so silly. Are people so, really so sensitive? No. Poop. Well, poop. Poop. Right. I, See, I think our, we our are desensitized. Appreciate that because uh, we we I talk about it at least once a week. I talk about poop. It happens a lot. I live with Only I once. live with I live with preschoolers. We talk about it daily. There we go. So this episode's not about poop. I should just point out. Um, <laughs> go, just to to recap for people who didn't uh, listen to that episode yet, and you should. Uh, these were bombs that were designed and tested during World War II. Uh, for and for those who somehow like you know uh, missed it, the idea was that thousands of Mexican free tail bats uh, were trained to wear little timed napalm. Uh, fire bombs on their back and then were loaded into one huge bomb that could be dropped over a Japanese city during the daytime and the bomb would break open and free the bats who'd be like, oh, daylight. And they would seek to roost in people's roofs uh, since it was daytime. And then Mm -hmm. when the napalm charges went off, they would set all the buildings on fire, basically burning down the entire city. Right. It was a completely bonkers idea that according to the testing, crazy if you will worked yeah yeah could could have worked um but we decided to split the atom instead which actually victoria has been talking about in the last couple episodes mm-hmm. um so keeping with that same animal theme i also talked about how bf skinner trained pigeons to be the mm. literal pilots of guided bombs yes uh, that was also <laughs> a really interesting episode mm-hmm. um, and i think i hinted at the time that i had at least one more story in me of animals used in war. You did. So buckle up. Here it's we go. Time. It's finally happening. I mean, Kirk, I, I did start things off. I don't know if it was before or after your bat bomb thing, but I talked about the hero pigeon of World War One. You did. A little yep. more you talked about the hero pigeon. Uplifting well. than, mm-hmm. than uh, sending incinerating them to the bats. <laughs> go on. It's, it's, it's dark. Uh, back in the 1950s, uh, the U.S. Navy actually started to study dolphins when they wanted to create better torpedoes. And let yeah, me stop you right there and just say line. that I want to assuage any fears. This story does not involve strapping explosives to dolphins <laughs> and having them swim into enemy boats. Okay, Let's just, you know, that's you a good that's where this going, have. Take a deep breath. <sighs> this is not what's happening. Okay. Um, <laughs> The, the Navy was mostly interested back then in like how these animals use their sonar to navigate and how they were so good at moving through waters. So they were studying like the shape of dolphins and things. Yeah. But the Navy's work yeah. with dolphins has increased over time. And there are literally, literally right now dolphins serving in the U.S. Navy. What? Which currently? Yes. The, 
the U.S. Navy uh, ha- uh, trains dolphins in San Diego, and these amazing animals perform several tasks uh, that we're aware of. Uh, the latest data I could find was sadly out of date, but I know that in 2007 alone, the U.S. Navy spent $14 million on dolphin training and oh, had multiple, okay. dolf- multiple dolphin crews. And I don't mean crews uh-huh. of humans, they do with that, but crews of dolphins mm-hmm. with a total of 75 dolphins enlisted. Wow. Um, and in 20, uh, okay. data for 2019, the Navy reportedly had 70 dolphins and 30 sea lions that were working with them. Um, and as I said, there's a number of tasks okay. that we're aware of and that they do, and probably a few that maybe the military would prefer we not know about. So I, I can't talk about those because I don't know about them. <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk about the four roles that we do for sure know uh, that dolphins play. Okay. In the Navy. Yeah. Why are, why are we spending $14 million dollars, uh, on dolphin training and things? I want per to know year. more. You know, per year. which in the context of military budgets is, is a drop in the bucket. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot to me. Uh, it's not that much. So first of all, we have swimmer rescue. Uh, oh, and there's okay. many stories of dolphins mm-hmm. spontaneously rescuing humans who are on the verge of drowning. Uh, they are very smart animals and they seem to recognize like a fellow mammal in need mm-hmm. and will come up and, and literally help drowning humans, which is very cool. Uh, well, the Navy has used this natural talent and has specifically trained dolphins to be uh, rescue swimmers to save people who are in the water. That's awesome. Uh, and to date, uh, the, the trained naval dolphins have actually performed more real world rescues at sea than trained human divers have. That's amazing. So they are. That is really amazing. Quite successful. Yeah. They are Uh, in the the water. Yeah, right. Uh, The second role they do is object recovery. And at first glance, this may sound like something like you would see at SeaWorld, right? Like I think we've all seen or very least seen like a video of like a dolphin bringing back a ball Mm -hmm. like a dog does. Uh, And this isn't exactly what I'm talking about, though. So dolphins can uh, locate and in some cases retrieve items um, from the seabed even. That mm. humans can't find. So they've, they've wow. found lost things on the seafloor. Okay. Uh, which is pretty, cool. pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, there, there's a really famous case, too, you can look up. I'm not going to go into all the details on it. But there was a, a case where some dolphins located, I believe it was like a, a torpedo that had been used in like testing uh, dur- uh-huh. during, during, I think, World War II that was lost off the coast of California. And they're able to recover this like prototype because the dolphins found it underwater. Which is kind of cool. That is cool. Um, it could perhaps be argued that the third and fourth roles that dolphins do are really just specialized versions of object recovery. Mm-hmm. I mean, in one sense, saving a a, a re- person who's drowning is also kind of object recovery. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the third use is helping to clear minefields Ooh. in the water. Okay. So underwater mines are, are very dangerous yeah. and difficult to detect. Um, but turns out dolphins are quite talented at finding them, um, and they're trained to locate the mines and then report back uh, when they find one. And some of these dolphins even wear like electronic little things on their little, flippers, yeah, uh, like cameras and GPS type locate. I say GPS. I, mean, I don't think they'd work underwater, but sort of, um, you know, equipment Radar. that helps the uh, humans locate where they are. Um, mm-hmm. So they can basically, the dolphins have a way to communicate and say, hey, I found one and like kind of ping their location and be like, here it is, mm-hmm. which is like 
Um, and then humans have to go in and disarm them. They don't give a little, you know, uh, okay. bomb diffusing kit to the uh, dolphins. They're not. Right. They're, just, they're just going. I found one, and then they get like free fish. They're yeah, like, I was wondering fun. how uh, the dolphins and the humans were communicating between each other because we haven't mastered interspecies communication yet. But that's great. I'm glad we figured I mean, that out. We haven't mastered, but like certainly an animal smart as a dolphin is very capable of communicating with humans through mm-hmm. lots of different ways. Um, it could yeah. be as simple as you, you basically train them the same way you train a dog. So you might say, hey, if you find a mine, I want you to, you know, um, you know, bounce up and down in the water or s- mm-hmm. slap your tail in the water, you know, or or you could do all kinds of different ways. Um, I think they actually have some way that there's some behavior the dolphin does that electronically then signals that they found one. Okay. Um, like maybe they, they, they rock really... back and forth or something like that. Yeah, Who the knows? sources yeah. I found did not go into that level of detail. I'm guessing some of that is they'd rather not reveal that. But um, <laughs> they, you know, they they definitely are communicating with the humans what's going on. And like I said, it is the same operant conditioning stuff you use to train a, a pet at home or like a police dog. They're basically having right. some, similar function to something like like that. Yeah. Now the fourth role is pretty wild and this is the one that i had just no idea they were doing um i think i saw uh, some movie years ago maybe like a james bond movie or something like that where like a scuba diver swims into a port at night and attaches explosives to the bottom of a ship mm-hmm. and then like blows it up, or you know it swims away and then maybe the next day or an hour later or something it blows up and no one ever knew they were there sounds or like you a hear bond old movie. stories in the old yeah. days yeah, yeah, I've even heard stories in the old days of wooden boats of people swimming under boats and like drilling holes in the bottom of boats and sinking them and stuff. And I've I've heard those stories and you go, you know, why don't we see that more often? Because it actually seems like a scuba diver or something going under a boat and attaching an explosive under it would actually be fairly easy mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. Well, it turns out part of why we don't see that is because of the dolphins. What they this you know this is apparently enough of a concern that someone may try to do this to a boat that the U.S. Navy actually uses dolphins for fleet protection. Wow! And what? one of the teams of dolphins has been trained to detect any divers in the water and then report their locations to humans. Like, hey, <laughs> I found someone swimming here. Something's going on, and they'll just like swim around the fleet looking for humans in the water. Their their aquatic security. Which is, Whoa. They are aquatic security, exactly, <laughs> which is wild. And they have actually been used this way um, in the in the field and in, in real conditions um, during both the second and first Gulf Wars. Wow. Um, dolphins were actually used because, you know, there's a lot of naval ships that were in waters where there's a lot of boats and a lot of, you know, nations that were not really happy about uh, what was going on there and what you know, mm-hmm. uh, might try to sink a boat and actually d- did attack uh, U.S. boats in those waters. And so they were actually had those dolphins working to protect boats uh, in those fleets, which is really, that's really wild. wild and bizarre. Yeah. So that's what I have today. I well, have um, you oh. know, dolphins working for the Navy. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. You know, sure. I have I have I have some thoughts, Kirk, and. One of my questions is, um, do the dolphins retire? And if they do, um, would they just say so long and thanks for all the fish? Yeah. I, I have. Oh, <laughs> you... oh, that is such a, such a terrible joke. I mean, I, 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 I applause. Good job. Very nice. <laughs> um, to seriously answer your, your not so serious question. 
uh, which was just a chance to put a joke in. Um, I, I would assume they do retire at some point. Um, okay. But I, I did not have any information on mm-hmm. that. Where do they like keep these dolphins? Because these aren't like wild dolphins, right? They're like... No, in... uh, the training apparently all takes place in San Diego as far as that's the place that I know of. Um, okay. And they um, just do regular training. And these are dolphins who are trained to travel so they can get them anywhere in the world within like 72 hours. Well, obviously it's not going to help if someone falls overboard and you're like, call the dolphins. Uh, (laughs) But they definitely, um, uh, you know what I mean? Like, we'll be right there. But I think they'll even like fly them places and stuff to get them, to get them around the world. Okay. Um, So these are very highly trained animals. And there, there's been, I just talked about the U S Navy. There's actually um, a number of navies around the world who've experimented with using seals and beluga whales and all kinds of different animals to try to, um, you know, to try to spy or to try to locate things. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's some pretty interesting um, history of how navies have used aquatic mammals um, to either learn more about how we can do things better or to do literally do things like protect boats, which is really cool. That's crazy. <laughs> well, this was much more fun and less depressing than the other two entries in this series. I, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't involve any dolphins <laughs> blowing up, which I was Yay! really happy about. Uh, I was, I was really worried. That's what I was going to discover when I went down the rabbit hole, but I didn't. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm happy about Good. that. Well, we're going to take a little break here. And when we come back, uh, we will have Rachel, who mm-hmm. I guess has another plant story for us, it sounds like. And we're going to find yeah. out. Well, we're back. And like I promised, uh, I have a plant topic for us today. Um, we are officially 84 episodes in. This is episode 84. Um, and I Woo-hoo! think it's yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's time to discuss what I consider to be the elephant in the room. Not the actual elephant. Oh. We'll get to them, probably. Um, but cactus. We've gone 84 ep- episodes. Oh. And not once have we talked about and covered the bizarreness that is cactus. All right. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Now, they've I mean, been tangentially mentioned, perhaps, but not uh, not, not specifically. Gotten the spotlight. Yeah, and I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to talk about cactus in general. They're so strange, and they have their own wild adaptations. And where they call home is just super intense. You know, the desert. Oh, but and you're going specific here. Huh? I'm going specific because if I. Otherwise, it would take Ooh. ages if I was going to cover the entirety of cactus. You, you could do a ca- the, the cactus podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I would decide this week to take the plunge. Uh, and I wanted to talk about a pretty famous Ouch. cactus, actually, that is insane on its own. All right. Um, today, I want to talk about the uh, specific cactus. It's actually like a super famous one. I want to make sure I say it correctly. Hold on. Um, it is. We should, we should be placing bets at this time. Which which one it is? Oh yeah, you should, because it's really good. I'm making movements with my lips as to which one I think it is. Ooh, it is. That's what is, uh, that's what I, I was going to do. Some hand gestures. <laughs> yeah, it actually is that one. Uh, it is the saguaro hey, cactus. Hey, as people at people at home are like, what hand gestures? <laughs> <represents> <laughs> yeah, Kirk, this is an audio medium. Oh, yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a saguaro. <laughs> I'm not trying to get. I didn't want to take away your thunder. It's why I, I, <laughs> people have seen a saguaro in, in cartoons. It's the one that like looks like a little bit like a wild, wacky, waving arm guy. Mm-hmm. It yeah. looks it, right. So it's like when you picture a cactus, this is what you picture. It is quite literally yeah. the yeah. symbol. Yeah, so I was, I was doing like the arms, cactus mm-hmm. with the big arms. Yeah, exactly. You picture wily coyote and exactly and its flower actually is the state flower of arizona um makes sense now these uh particular cacti um are just truly astonishing so cacti in general already have to do with pretty uh intense conditions uh based on the fact pretty much because they are living in a desert there's not a lot of water as is you know the habitat of the desert. There's only um, minimal amounts of water that come every single year. Um, so a lot of plants Correct. and animals do what they can to minimize loss of water. Um, the saguaro does this by having a really thick waxy coating um, all over its entirety. Uh, and it actually uses, um, the, because of that waxy coating, it doesn't use... There's several different kinds of photosynthesis, and the kind that it uses is um, really an interesting. I I don't remember off the top of my head what the name of that particular kind of photosynthesis is, but um, oh, but it is really it's really cool, uh, and I'm gonna talk is about it, it at some point. More or efficient. It is more efficient. We're gonna save it for a future episode. We are okay. gonna save it for a future episode. These uh particular plants uh saguaros the type of photosynthesis that they use um part of the process for photosynthesis happens at night um so the entire process the general idea behind photosynthesis is that uh you put water and sunshine in um and carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. and then on the other side oxygen water and sugar come out Um, part of the the little black box that is photosynthesis yeah exactly and when you're in the desert you do not want to have um a lot of water leave uh because it's very important yeah um but i won't get too much into the photosynthesis of this uh cactus because we have other things to talk about so the saguaro is so i just just want to clarify though because you started to say yeah that part of it happens at night so yes. is it the part that involves CO2? Is it the, it's the part releasing that... Releasing the CO2? Yes. Okay. Because if they open those stomata during the day, they'd also lose too much moisture. Exactly. So they're opening their stomata at night. Um, okay. Because when yeah. you first said like photosynthesizing at night, I'm like, there, there's no sun at night, Rachel. But I get it. It's <laughs> part, part of the process. It is part yeah. of the process. Yeah. Awesome. Um, that's that's so yeah, strange. It's not the that's whole weird. Thing. I love it. It is very weird. Um, and that is a whole other like section to talk about with that type of photosynthesis. Been on my list for a while. Anyway, um, sneak peek. Uh, this particular cactus, however, um, is strange on its own besides all of the photosynthesis. So it, um, this particular cactus, the tallest that has ever been found, is 78 feet tall. Oh no! Oh man! I knew they could get big, but that is really no. Big. Yes. No. Yes. Seventy-eight feet. 
Not 7.8? Nope. You haven't misplaced a decimal? Nope. 78 feet tall. Pull the other one. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Uh, here's the thing. That is the tallest specimen. uh Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. On average, they are about, uh, they grow about 40 feet tall. Which is still a lot. Yeah, they they are big. They are. They big, are very yeah. large. That's a four story building. Like. <laughs> yeah, uh, they get very very large. Um, now, I want you to think about this. You grow that tall in the desert. Are you a fast growing plant mm-hmm. or are you slow? Slow, probably. I, I mean. I feel like it's a, you're asking us, which means it's a trick question. So I would say slow, because mm-hmm. it takes a long time to get big. But the fact that you're asking it, I think it's a switcheroo, and I'm going to say they grow fast, Rachel. Ooh. I'm sorry. It wasn't a switcheroo. Victoria's right. Ah! <laughs> yeah, no, it, it'd make no, it would yeah. make no sense for them to grow that fast. So Exactly. Um, so these cacti are generally found in like Arizona and, um, part like Southwestern part of Arizona. There's an entire national park just dedicated to preserve their habitat. I have, I have been there. Oh, so cool. And that goes down into Mexico. Um, they are slow growing, Mm -hmm. um, and they are the largest cactus in the United States. Um, but the growth rate of the cactus does depend on precipitation. Um, okay. It they grow really slowly from seed, and um, after two years, they can be about a fourth of an inch tall. Oh, Oh, that's so wee. Yeah, it's very, very little. Um, so they, uh, it's just they're they're crazy. Um, they grow incredibly slowly. And part of that is just due to the environment that they are in. They are actually a keystone species. A lot of animals and um, other creatures in the desert and people who made their home in the desert um, relied on this particular plant. Um, But because they grow so slowly, it takes a long time for them to gain sexual maturity. Um, It takes them a... Sure. it, It takes anywhere between 20 and 50 years for them to be a meter high. Oh, wow. Which is not a lot of, uh, is is (laughs) not a lot of feet (laughs) for a cacti. Um, and that, in which case that actually means and causes it to be, it, it takes about 70 years for it to reach sexual maturity. Um, wow. Before it, um, it can take up to 70 years. Uh, it can also, depending on where it is, um, they can start producing flowers at about 35 years of age. Um, and those are found at the end of the main trunk. And generally speaking, also along uh, where the, the arms are, the iconic arms. Not every saguaro has um has those arms. arms those don't appear before i flip my numbers around those don't appear um until 50 to 70 years of age and these cacti regularly get to be um 
150 to 200 years old. Wow. Yeah, I know when I was down there, and that's why I was going to be so surprised if you were saying that the answer was they grew fast, because I was like, I thought mm-hmm. they grew slow. She's trying to trick me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the ones that were down there were highly protected, and so there was... Yeah. You would see people transplanting them if there was something like, say, a highway or something had to go through somewhere. Like every single one would be dug up, boxed up, and carefully moved. And uh, they keep very careful tabs on them and, and protect them very gingerly. Mm-hmm. Um, the cool thing is, is like the roots themselves, they radiate. The roots go down into the soil. Um, and I say this, uh, they protect them off of your protection comment because... Um, they are really sensitive to uh, things like roads and construction and people going near them because the roots themselves don't go super duper deep. They have one root that goes about two feet deep and that's like its main like anchor. But otherwise, most of the roots are within like six inches from the top of the soil, you know? So they're That's not wild that they can uh, stay standing up at all. If they're like <laughs> 40, yeah, they're 50 not feet far. tall. And yeah. Yeah. And those roots will like span outwards more. Um, they are really truly called like the trees of the desert. Um, but they really need uh, as much support as they can get. Um, one thing that's really cool about the saguaro is they actually um, absorb so they absorb a lot of water if it rains they um will absorb the and actually like inflate um like all of their tissues will collect as much water as possible um where Mm -hmm. they can i think what was it it was somewhere like at least a gallon of water can be held i think it was more than that but um at least a gallon of water can be held within that that particular up within a saguaro um to give you a little context too if it is fully hydrated the the saguaro cactus uh like an average one uh can weigh between 1500 and 2200 kilograms whoa so they're really really heavy and they're really intense plants um but it's all water weight it is. Oh my God. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, these are just really interesting uh, cacti and the fact that they are able to um, branch off and it takes so long for them to branch off. And then they have spines because they are cacti, which is a type of uh, protection against animals, which I don't think works very well because they are keystone species. Like there are pictures of uh, house sparrows, which we see here in Minnesota, hanging out on mm-hmm. uh, saguaro cactuses. Um, oh yeah, the the Gila woodpecker will make the the holes yep, in them absolutely. that other animals will use. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, and like they're a really important uh, plant for a lot of animals. Uh, they have a their flowers that uh, bloom. Uh, they're a really pretty like white flower that goes on the tips of the arms uh, or the top of the, the stem. Um, these flowers, they can't self-pollinate, so they rely on pollinators, uh, including honeybees and the lesser long-nosed bat. 
So they are really, they use a lot of bats and they actually use white winged doves as well um, as pollinators, Um, which is really cool. Yeah. So I just wanted to touch base with uh, cactus and I wanted to talk about cactus uh, because we haven't talked about it and this is a really large and crazy one. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for such a uh, pointed conversation. That was terrible, Kirk. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. uh, Sorry. Well, thank you all for a prickly ending like that. We'll just, you know. How long have you been holding on to these? (laughs) Well, just waiting for the right right moment. (laughs) Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, We'll see you next week. Bye. See you then. Bye. Cactus joke. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.